You're listening to ReachMD on XM233, the channel for medical professionals. And this is the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm joined today by co-host Dr. Daniel Petrasic for a special news recap discussion on the subject of extensively drug-resistant tuberculosis and the case of patient Andrew Speaker. Dr. Petrasic, good to have you with us. Thank you. Great to be here. On this subject today, we're speaking with Dr. Andrew Pavia. Dr. Pavia is the chair of the National and Global Public Health Committee for the Infectious Diseases Society of America. He is also professor and chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the University of Utah Health Sciences Center. Dr. Pavia, welcome to our program. Glad to be with you. All right. Uh, now, before we move into some of the greater implications from this case on our public health systems, and I know that Dr. Petrasic is just uh, itching to do that, I'd love for us to do a quick TB101 refresher course for our listeners. All of us are medical professionals, but I, as one myself, I'm actually a little bit naive on some of the definitions here. What exactly is extensively drug-resistant, or XDR-TB, as it compares to the classical definition that I've heard for multi-drug-resistant TB? Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, As um, most people remember, MDR-TB, or multiple drug-resistant TB, is when you're resistant to two or more drugs, and one of them has to be one of the primary drugs that we depend on, INH and rifampin. But you still have a fairly good armamentarium of second-line drugs. Extensively drug-resistant TB is defined as TB that's resistant to both INH and rifampin and all of the second-line drugs. It often is also resistant to a number of the third-line drugs, so it's really very difficult to treat and sometimes untreatable. And when we speak about untreatable, a question that comes to mind for me is, it, is it XDR-TB, is this a predominantly fatal form of the disease or have patients actually survived with it? There are patients who've survived and there are approaches that can be very helpful, including uh, if the disease is limited, surgery to excise the infected area and prolonged administration of experimental drugs and third-line drugs can help. Where we've seen incredible mortality has been in an outbreak of XDRTB in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, where it was predominantly HIV-infected and women who were getting XDRTB. And in that setting, virtually everyone with HIV and XDRTB died. I see. And I, I assume that the surgical option for treatment is much less available in that region. Is the surgical option, which I know has been put on the table for Uh, Andrew Speaker, and they're thinking about doing that for him. Is that something that can be curative? Yeah, this is really going back to TB treatment from the 40s. It has a reasonably good track record when the disease isn't really disseminated. Uh, And in his case, what we understand from news reports is that there's a solitary lesion involving one lobe of the lung. HIV-infected and immunocompromised patients usually aren't so lucky. Their disease is usually more extensive throughout the lung and often outside of the lung. How rare is uh, XDR-TB in the U.S. or even globally for that matter? Well, we don't have very good numbers globally. It's been reported in a very large number of countries, and surveillance is really inadequate in a lot of places. The areas where we know the most about it include India and in South Africa, but that's probably because we've got a combination of big TB epidemics with good medical research there that can look for it. In the U.S., there's something in the range of 94 cases that have been reported to CDC so far. Uh, But again, we're not sure how complete that reporting is. I see. And I think a, a last question that comes to mind when we talk about the rarity of this disease and the limited number of cases that have been reported by the CDC is that when we look at some of the measures taken in this case with Andrew Speaker, and I'm actually kind of disregarding the federal quarantine because that's a whole unique situation since 1963, if I'm not mistaken. But when we talk about isolation procedures, uh, the extensive tracking down of contacts, would you say that it's safe to call that a standard response for any patient who 
has come in with uh, newly diagnosed XDR-TB? I, I think it is, but I think it's important also to remember that there's a lot of basic public health measures that are supposed to kick into place with every new case of active TB that include tracking the patient, finding his or her contacts who might have been exposed, making sure that they're isolated until the treatment has made them non-infectious. And we really shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it's these public health measures with regular TB that we're really using to try and control XDR-TB where we can't rely so much on the drugs. Well, I think in mentioning the public health measures, it's a perfect opportunity to turn the floor over to Dr. Petrasic. Dr. Petrasic, I know you have a number of questions that you're just hoping to ask in terms of uh, the public health systems. Do you want to ask anything? Thank you, Dr. Bertholz. One thing that occurs to me, sort of like shooting from the hip, that I know that we've been seeing over at least a couple of decades an increase in resistant TB and not just the XDR variety. What on the research end has been done to try to develop new and innovative approaches on the antibiotic front? Well, I think the the simple answer is not nearly enough. TB has not been an attractive drug target for pharmaceutical companies because the majority of difficult-to-treat TB is occurring in countries where there's not a lot of resources to pay for it. And I think most people would argue that we haven't put enough resources from NIH or the European Union into funding research and new mechanisms. So we're now playing catch-up and trying to get that going. If I could just interject, it's astounding to me that we don't have higher interjection procedures or policies, considering that, if I'm not mistaken, isn't it at least 2 million people that die every year globally from tuberculosis? Yeah, and I think that TB experts have been really trying to bring that to people's attention for years. There's been a lot invested in TB control, and remember that the Global Fund uh, focuses on HIV, malaria, and TB, and the President's Emergency Program for the Control of AIDS has TB control measures in it. But given the scope of the problem, and given some of the technological and research things that we really need to get a better handle on it, I'd argue we haven't done nearly enough. So given that we haven't done enough, but if we were to now... Uh, make this into sort of like a micro-Manhattan project. What what would be the strategies to try to, you know, uh, attack the resistant strains? I mean, are there, are there strategies in mind, or are, are these still to be developed? When you talk to people who've spent their lifetime thinking about this, they usually focus on the most important problem being the delay in figuring out who has resistant TB. Even in the U.S., in the best of all circumstances, there's a delay of several weeks to determine whether you've got INH and rifampin resistance, and then up to several more months before you find out if it's really broad spectrum. And that was the case with Andrew Speaker's illness. Now, when you move to areas where XDRTB is really a problem, like South Africa, they don't have the resources most of the time to even culture TB, let alone do the resistance testing routinely, and to do testing for second and third line agents. And if they do it, it's a very long and slow project. So the number one priority is really rapid diagnosis of TB and rapid diagnosis of resistant TB. It appears that we don't have any new strategies for antibiotic development that would attack new and novel TB biochemical markers. Is that the case? No, that's a bit of an oversimplification. There are strategies that are being looked at, and they're mostly in fairly early and preclinical stages, um, including looking at novel targets in the bacteria and non-antibiotic ways of going after it. There are a handful of drugs in early clinical development, but they're pretty limited, and 
we're right now hearing about ways to accelerate the development and try and put some resources into it and setting up the trials in an area where there's highly resistant disease. But, but I, I really want to point out that there's been a big decrease in the overall investment in TB control in the U.S. CDC had a 14% decrease in its TB control funding last year. And I think we're not alone throughout the world in having not invested adequately. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD on XM233, the channel for medical professionals. This is Dr. Matt Bernholtz, your host, joined by co-host Dr. Daniel Petrasic. And we're speaking to Dr. Andrew Pavia, who is the chair of the National and Global Public Health Committee for the IDSA and a professor and chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the University of Utah. Our topic today is extensively drug-resistant TB and the case of patient Andrew Speaker. Uh, Dr. Petrasic, I know you had an, a question lined up. Sure, yeah. So that's a little more encouraging just from uh, you know, the, the lay physician point of view that you know, at least some things can be done. Looking at the, the problem from an epidemic point of view, do we have an existing system that is you know, sort of robust and tracks infected patients in some reliable way? We're kind of a little bit in the dark when we uh, just pay attention to the news. Actually, we have a pretty good system in place in the U.S. in theory for tracking ordinary TB, and because drug resistance reporting is supposed to be included in that, it should find MDR and XDR TB and track it. And it's really pretty low-tech. It involves a lot of you know, boots on the ground would be the modern analogy. It involves public health workers going out and tracking the contacts of the patient, sending notification interstate if needed, making sure the contacts are tested and treated as necessary. But it's a pretty labor-intensive, low-tech, and kind of unsexy approach, and it takes money. It's basic public health infrastructure, and that's what fell apart in the 1980s at the time we had the first MDR explosion, if you will, and then it's been happening now and we're not very well equipped to deal with a big resurgence of any sort of TB right now, let alone XDR. But when you consider the recent federal budget cutting down by at least 14%, and then looking towards the current situation with Andrew Speaker, how do we, how do the large public health organizations rationalize this cutting of, I mean, as you put it, the non-sexy approach to preventing this disease? I think NIH and CDC have remained very concerned about TB throughout this time. The problem has been overall cutbacks in budget and the need to redirect resources to other areas such as bioterrorism and avian influenza. Uh, so that I think this problem is one that public health officials and, and basic researchers have seen coming, but it's not up to them how much money is available. Given that we are putting so much money and effort into um, homeland security, there's probably a, a new infrastructure in terms of tracking people and moving in and out of the country and around the country, I'm wondering if now that might actually benefit these kinds of things where we can potentially track people better taking advantage of whatever infrastructure has been put in by Homeland Security. Yeah, I think that there are some areas where we really need better infrastructure to track people. My personal bias is that we have to be careful that we do that in a way that doesn't trample on individual rights. But, for example, uh, airlines have no way at present to track every passenger on an airplane. Unless you're a frequent flyer, they don't necessarily have contact information for you. And that's a problem that comes up over and over again with airline exposures. Likewise, as people travel interstate, if all you have is a name and you don't have other information, it may be very hard to track them. And I know that was a, a particular issue that they were mentioning in the case of Andrew Speaker. 
that he was able to fly essentially all over, uh, even though he had been given warnings and I'm sure they had some identification status with him in terms of his disease state, but he was still able to fly all over in commercial and passenger lines. And I think it's worth, as we look at this and think about it, do we need better regulations, or is it that the bureaucracy and and the efficiency with which the regulations we have were carried out wasn't adequate to the task? And right now there's a lot of talk, at least, that it was really slip-ups and delays rather than not having adequate regulations or adequate communication systems. And I think we have to wait and see what the, the story really was. Well, Dr. Pavia, I think you've just given us a perfect forum for a further discussion down the road. I want to thank Dr. Andrew Pavia, our guest, as well as my co-host, Dr. Daniel Petrasic, for joining me today on this special news recap discussion of XDR-TB in relation to the case of patient Andrew Speaker. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. As always, we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for listening.